if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Everyone who converts to Catholicism is going to be asked at some point to explain why they did so. And our stories are going to be as different as, well, as we all are. It, it's like climbing a mountain. We all begin at different places around the mountain, and we go up different trails, and we move at different speeds. But as we near the summit, all those trails converge. Even so, for the last hundred years, a lot of English-speaking converts to Catholicism have been heavily influenced by a short essay by the English writer and convert to Catholicism, G.K. Chesterton. As I said, the essay is about a hundred years old, and it's called simply, Why I Am a Catholic. You see, Chesterton was a pretty famous public figure in early 20th century England, and he felt after his conversion that he needed to explain his reasons. Since then, lots of folks have said that Chesterton's essay not only influenced their own decision to convert, but captured some of the aspects of their own story. Chesterton, in some sense, puts words to what so many of us have felt on our own roads to Rome. So, I thought I would bring my good friends Corey Lakatos and Ed the Protestant together for the first time on the podcast so that the three of us could talk about Chesterton's essay and how he captures so many of our own reasons for considering, and in the case of Corey and I, converting to Catholicism. Now, if you'd like to read the essay yourself, I'll put a link to it on the Considering Catholicism website with this episode. And it was a rather long conversation, so I've split it into two episodes. This is the first part, so look for part two to be released in just a few days. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, send me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. I can't tell you how excited I am to have both of you guys on the podcast at the same time. So we've had this sort of thing going on where we've kept you separate but equal. And uh, and finally, it's time to merge the streams and bring Corey and Ed together here at the One Rolling Adventure Secret Compound for a fun three-way conversation. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So we're talking today about this 100-year-old essay by G.K. Chesterton. Now, Chesterton himself uh, converted from Protestantism to Catholicism, and he was quite a well-known writer and intellectual in London at the time when he did this. And for you listeners, when he converted, it was, it was he sort of lived equivalent with all the people if you watch Downton Abbey. And he was running around during that time 
sort of Edwardian uh, London. And he was extremely well known. And so when he converted, it was kind of a big deal. People are like, wow, you know, Chesterton, he was a well-known newspaper editor, essayist, um, wrote a lot of columns. Uh, some people have said that if he was around today, he would have been a, a blogger or a podcaster or a talk radio host because he was just constantly uh, putting stuff out every day. And when he converted, a lot of people obviously uh, questioned that. They questioned him. They criticized him. And so he felt compelled to write an essay answering the question why he had become a Catholic. And so he wrote an essay called, well, Why I Am a Catholic. And th this essay has been important for so many of us in the last hundred years that have converted to Catholicism. A lot of us have read this and along the way and found it really compelling. And so I just wanted to throw it out to you guys. When did you first read this essay and you know, how did it strike you with when you read it and kind of what impact it had on you personally? Yeah, I can't remember exactly when I read this essay, but it was sometime along those few years when I was considering Catholicism. And it definitely was a big part of it when he talks in here about the truth of the Catholic faith. Um, that was a big deal for me. I was looking for what was true. I was parsing different Protestant denominations and what they claimed to be true and the contradictions between, between their truth claims. And for me, it, it was encountering his argument that the Catholic Church is, is a confident guardian of the truth um, that has persevered and withstood the test of time, that was really important to me. And Chesterton in, in general was, a, was an author that was, was very significant to me in that process. Ed, when did you first read this? Or? I don't think I read it until maybe a year ago. Okay. I think you pointed me toward it. Hmm. And when I first read it, I was, I was thinking that I, Chesterton and C.S. Lewis were contemporaries or friends mm. anyway. I think Chesterton was older. Chesterton but. was older. Lewis read him admiringly. Right. He was a yeah. generation or two before. Yeah. And, okay. And, yeah. and, and I remember Lewis saying he didn't, that Chesterton had gone down a road that he would not have chosen, mm -hmm. but that he respected him. And I thought, yeah, but C.S. Lewis is kind of my guy when it comes to theology. <laughs> and, right. so, and so I read through this and I thought, and I thought, no, I, I, I'm kind of sorry I read this now because right. he really makes some good points. I thought I read through it and thought oh, I need to I need to come back to this because I think if I read this, I don't know where it's going to take me. I, I I don't remember reading anything specifically. I went back through and read it a, a couple of nights ago, but it just it just forced me to think about things. I couldn't ignore if if Lewis respected him, I had to respect him too, and that that forced me to think hard about what he was saying and not, I was not unable to just brush it off. You know, well, I, I think that's true. And I think for all of us at a certain point in our life, you know, C.S. Lewis is, is kind of like the Protestant evangelical equivalent of a doctor of the church. Uh, he, is, yeah. he is sort of what, what the doctors of the church are to Catholics uh, to at least uh, evangelical Protestants. And so, you know, we put this enormous amount of respect, but, but you're right. I mean, so much of Lewis uh, was influenced by by Chesterton, and he he very consciously, and I think some many ways, Corey explicitly, you know, references Chesterton. Yeah, like, Lewis references Chesterton in his autobiography as as a big yeah. step for him in converting to Christianity to begin with. Yeah, and then and then I think also there's just a lot of concepts that are that you read in Lewis and go, oh, this is really great when you're reading mere Christianity or whatever, and then you go a generation or two and see that some of those things you know, a resident in Chesterton. So he was an influence on Lewis's thinking. But what, what's interesting is what you said, Ed, is, is that he went to a place that Lewis couldn't go. 
And, you know, I think Corey and I, you had, and I had a conversation recently that we recorded for the podcast where we mm-hmm. talked about there was only so far that Lewis could go, you know, he, he couldn't follow his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. He couldn't follow in some sense his mentor, Chesterton, mm-hmm. um, because he couldn't, he couldn't ever really uh, wrap his mind around the papacy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, I think, you know, and it, this has been an influential essay for so many people and the three of us. So, so here's my question is, this thing is a hundred years old, but, it, you know, for me, I read it and I feel like it's completely relevant today. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Like we can discuss, especially this first section where he makes these, these six points of, about why he became a Catholic. But the one that sticks out to me in that regard is, is the third one where he says it's the only thing that frees a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. And that's the kind of statement that's universal. It's true in any age. You can be enslaved to your age a hundred years ago or today or a thousand years from now. And if the church being a member of it is, is an antidote to that, then, then this is a timeless point. Is that especially problematic today? Because at least maybe in earlier ages, you were anchored in some sort of civilizational foundation, civilizational history, some continuity. But today we're sort of on the adrift on this sea of sort of cultural relativism, maybe cultural nihilism. And so there's nothing, there's no fixed point. You're just kind of blown about by the winds of whatever is the current, the, the, the current thing. I do think we're especially susceptible today because as you said in in many ages past you would have been grounded in a tradition even if you had rejected parts of it you probably wouldn't have rejected all of it or you would have seen yourself as as part of it in some way whereas today it is very fashionable to to reject the whole cloth and to to kind of see us as moving past all of that and of course you have antecedents for that you have the revolutionary periods uh, in Europe especially France that tried to do away with with very much of the the previous civilization but i think just chopping at that trunk over and over again over the last few centuries we've gotten to a point where it is much more easy and natural and, and automatic, I think, for a lot of people to, for that to be their starting point of rejection of the past. You know, Ed, as, as you're, you know, considering these matters and considering Catholicism and, and you know, very much, you're, you're, I'm going to say this, uh, I'm going to compliment Ed and sort of um, uh, maybe backhand Corey, a curb stomp Corey here, but, <laughs> but let's just say that, Ed, you're probably more tuned into pop culture than Corey. And That's fair. That's uh, fair. Ed is, Ed is a pop culture icon. Um, so the right. thing is, is that how does that, how does Chesterton's hundred year old essay strike you in terms of having relevance to sort of our, our popular, you know, well, moment? Having chased culture all my life. It's, uh, I'm a musician, right? So, so it was, you know, I, I'm even, I'm better at this than even some of my contemporary friends, musicians, because I listen to things that are much older. and but, but by much older, I mean from the 30s, from the <laughs> 1930s. I don't even mean, you know, older than that. When I read this and reread it yesterday, that really appealed to me, the fact that the Catholic Church never changes. Because I have lived in the world of church changing and being reinvented over and over and over and over and over. And I really bought into that. So, you know, you asked, you know, is it as relevant today? Why is it as relevant today as it was? Because his point is exactly that the Catholic Church hasn't changed. And so it was, he's, you could say the same thing today that he said a hundred years ago and it wouldn't be any, it wouldn't be any different. That's terribly appealing to me. 
Well, let's get right into this essay. So if anybody's following along, this essay is widely available online. Just Google Chester, GTK Chesterton, uh, why I'm a Catholic, and we'll, we'll throw it up on the website as well. Mm-hmm. It's public domain. It's out there. But let's just drive right into it because he opens with a rather shocking first sentence. And the first sentence is this. The difficulty of explaining why I am a Catholic is that there are 10,000 reasons, all amounting to one reason, that Catholicism is true. Now, for me, the essay could have stopped right there. It could have been full stop, period, the end. And it could have been a one-sentence summary of, in a sense, why I converted. I mean, this is my, you know, for me, I can't speak for you guys, but at a certain point, I came to believe that Catholicism was true. And once I came to that conclusion, what else could I do? I, I couldn't continue uh, in something that I knew to be untrue. And so for me, Catholicism either stands, and it's really any belief system, stands or falls on whether it's true or not. I'm not going to believe in an untruth. And if it's true, then it's compelling. So for me, that was kind of a hard conclusion to come to because personally, I had spent so many years in a sense teaching and promulgating things as a Protestant that I had come, that I came to believe were not true. I got a, just before we recorded this, I got an email a couple hours ago from a former Protestant colleague and who I had sent some of the broadcasts to and said, hey, check out this stuff. And it was a little bit of a pushback, like a little bit of like, dude, you're, you know, what you're, what kind of crazy stuff are you teaching on your podcast? And, you know, I thought you were on our team. And, and so at some, at a certain point, you have to decide what you think is true and that's going to take you where it takes you. So anyway, let me throw it out to you, to you, you guys and see what you think about that. Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. Uh, like I said before, it, it, there's a lot of uh, con- conflicting uh, views that you'll hear among among Protestants, and certainly in the in the broader culture, lots lots of different conflicting truth claims. Um, and I was already a Christian. I, I was already convinced of the truth of the gospel, and so it was a matter of what what body, what what church, what group is teaching this with the greatest accuracy, the greatest continuity with, with Christ and, and with the apostles and with um, the, the stream of, of Christian, Christian history and thought, faithful Christian history and thought. And, and yeah, I, I came to the conclusion that Chesterton came to, that, that that was the Catholic Church. And like you said, I think it's compelling at that point. What, what else can you do? It's like what Peter said to Christ, um, where else would we go? You have the words of, of everlasting life. If the church is the guardian of truth, which isn't to say that there aren't portions of the truth outside of it, but if the wholeness of it is contained in the Catholic church, that Catholic and universal church, then I can't avoid that. I can't just pretend like I don't believe that anymore and act as if I don't believe that anymore. Right. Ed? You guys are way ahead of me in this, right? Right. I, you're years ahead of me. Well, theoretically, this. I mean, either we're years ahead of you or we're out, you know, where the trains don't run, you're not going to join us. Right. So. Well, I've, I've known you for a long time and you, Corey, you for a fairly long time. And <laughs> that is true about you guys. You're out where the trains don't run, but that's not <laughs> when, it, when it comes to Catholicism. Um, so, so I'm at this place that I'm sure you were where 
you're, you're asking yourself, what if this is true? I mean, what if this is right? You know, and I, and I pride myself on being all logical about it. Right. But as, as I read through it a year ago or whatever, and then just a couple nights ago, I was, I was sort of intuitively feeling that this was right. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I can't find, I can't pick this apart. I can't, you know, and I think of the arguments that my, as this has become known in uh, a few of my Protestant friends, like, I don't say anything about this on Facebook because I'll just end up, you know, staying up in the middle of the night. In a flame or something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Typing back uh, overly clever, uh, you know, responses and everything. Um, But the few people I've talked to um, about this, their arguments back to me aren't very good. They're just, they're just not, they're not very good. And I read this and I think, I've never read any, anything like this in, in uh, uh, Protestant apologetics, right? I just have never run across anything like this. It just, and, uh, I, and so I, this is a kind of a hard thing for me because it feels true. Now, whether that's the Holy Spirit witnessing with me or whether I, I'm just intuitively, I don't know. But Well, like, okay, we're gonna, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because we'll burn 20 minutes on this episode about it, right? But there's this fancy philosophical philosophical term called epistemology, which is the, the field of philosophy that deals with what you know and how we know things, right? But if you think about truth, there's a sort of a game that gets played a lot. And that is that a lot of times people will insist that, you, that, that to know something, you have to be able to prove it in a mathematical sense, right? Like you can do a mathematical proof. The reality is, is that a lot of times we believe things not on, out of mathematical certainty, but out of preponderance of evidence. So, you know, if somebody tells me, um, you know, such and such and such and such, I go, well, you know, 10, 10 good witnesses and I've got a picture of it and, you know, I can't prove it mathematically, but it seems to be there's pretty solid evidence. That's, that's how you make a decision in a court of law, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then the other thing that you're saying, Ed, is a lot of times... The truth is, in some sense, a, an epiphany. It becomes a sort of an awareness. And that's when someone tells me something. Uh, I'm talking to a friend. I'm talking to my wife. I'm talking to somebody. I come to believe them. Well, and a lot of it, too, is, is not necessarily just um, becoming convinced of the truth, but becoming willing to accept the truth. Mm-hmm. Because I think we can be logically argued into accepting a proposition and that do, is not the same thing as being able to 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 live it or to really accept it like into into one's heart right. and i think that because the human being is rational but also we we are incarnate we're emotional that in order to sort of incorporate a truth into ourselves it takes more than just the heady rational argumentation right. well, and I think actually the order goes when we come to believe things, a lot of times the other direction. I think we come to believe or intuit that something is true. And then we look for evidence to, to support that. To make sure that we haven't just, you know, gone on a flight of fancy based right. on our emotions. So to bring this back to Catholicism and Chesterton's point, at a certain point, like for me in my journey, I just, you know, began to think egads. Right. It's true. And, you know, that was sort of a combination of investigating, looking at the arguments, looking at biblical texts, reading things, but also this sense of intuition and coming to this belief. And then once you sort of have this, this sense that Catholicism is true, then you, it causes you to dive a little bit deeper into understanding it. 
because you don't investigate things that you don't, you're not curious about. So it seems like there's a dance between sort of intu- intuitive awareness of the truth and sort of investigation and evidence. But at some point you get drawn into this and, and you come to believe. And I, I you know, uh, with Chesterton, if you said, if, if he just ended the essay right there and said, look, and, and, and I've been asked this, I've been asked this by many former Protestant friends, why are you Catholic? And I'll say, like Chesterton, I, because I think it's true. And well, that, that's enough. That, that's kind of like, you know. And this, isn't, and this isn't a truth like the Pythagorean theorem. That's the truth. This is God. Okay. So, so, so me convincing me that the uh, sum of the, uh, of the two sides is equal to the square of the whatever, right? So, so convincing me of that, you maybe could convince me of that or not convince me of that. But this is, you know, it's like um, I was reading uh, the uh, Chesterton's biography of Thomas Aquinas, and he said that he was convinced that he could, if he had enough time to spend, he could convince anybody that Christianity was right. But he understood that people didn't have all that kind of time. They had to, they had to, you know, they had to feed their families and work. And so he, he said, well, it's got to be, it's got to come by revelation. And that's, um, learning the Pythagorean theorem is not the same thing as God revealing to you that his word is true or that things about Christianity are true. That's a different drawing. Well, you know? okay. So it all depends on who you're in a sense discussing it with or more particularly arguing with. So if I'm arguing against an atheist, part of it is, is um, uh, it's the argument of, do I believe that Christianity is true? And, and the, the question is always that we're put on the defensive, like the burden of proof is on us. The presumption um, is, is the presumption lies with the atheist or the secular person. And I mean, we go down, I don't want to go down this path right now, but I think there's an argument he made. Why should I believe in atheism? Or why should I believe? Why is that the default setting? It hasn't been the default setting for history. Um, so to some degree, I can say I believe Christianity is true just as validly as I come to an intuition or belief about that. But then it's interesting when you talk about Protestants, my Protestant friends will say, well, in some sense, I have to prove that Catholicism is true. And I sometimes come back and want to push back on them and say, I think the burden of proof is on you to prove that it isn't because it's been the sturdy, the steady testimony of the church for 2000 years. And if you're going to disagree with that, well, why is the burden of proof on me rather than on you? So anyway, um, you said that in an earlier podcast that the Catholic church was there for 1500 years before the Protestants broke off from it. So make your case. Yeah. Right. Right. It's you who wandered, not, not the Catholics aren't the ones that wandering. They never, they've never wandered. So, okay. That's the true thing. Now, right away in the second sentence, right, opening with that, Chesterton shifts the argument from this whole thing about the Catholicism is true. And in the second sentence, he starts to, starts to argue for Catholicism on its merits. And, and here's the second sentence. He says, I could fill all of my space with separate sentences, each beginning with the words, it is the only thing that, dot, dot, dot. And he lists six for instances. Okay, so let me read them, and then I want to hear you guys react, okay? Pick, pick whichever ones you guys want and go off. The first of his six instances where he says, it is the only thing that, it is the only thing that really prevents a sin from being a secret. It is the only thing in which the superior cannot be superior, in the sense of being supercilious. It is the only thing that frees a man from the degrading slavery 
of being a child of his age. It is the only thing that talks as if it were the truth, as if it were a real messenger refusing to tamper with a real message. It is the only type of Christianity that really contains every type of man, even the respectable man. And it is the only large attempt to change the world from the inside, working through wills and not laws, and so on. So, those are Chesterton's six, you know, big declarations or reasons. Boys, take it away. Yeah, well, just to get started on that first one about sin not being a secret, um, I, I, that was important at a practical level um, for me, um, especially with the sacrament of confession, because as, as a Protestant, I certainly believe that I should confess my sins to God and maybe sometimes to, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but there was nothing, no mechanism, um, to use a very practical word, uh, to compel or even just encourage me to to make it make that confession to anyone else and so my and and of course you can just refuse to go to confession but if if you're practicing the sacrament of confession regularly then it's a great bulwark against self-deception and against your ability to just keep your sins a secret in in your own mind and and not bring them to the church to anyone else Uh, and i i think that's of great benefit you know, keep, you can, you can, you can kid yourself. You can fool yourself. If you, if you're doing something you think you shouldn't be doing, um, you can, you can say to yourself, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to confess this, but it's really not all that bad. And you say it out loud to somebody and you hear it, you hear it through their ears and you think, oh my gosh, this maybe, maybe, you know, um, I had, um, I had an accountability partner when I was working at the big church and this was all the rage in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were out of town and we were rooming together at this big conference and we were lying in these separate twin beds in the motel room. Uh, and, and my accountability partner who was an elder was flipping channels sort of, sort of while we were talking, he was flipping channels and, and, uh, came across an R rated movie and, uh, and we both knew we should not be looking at this, right? And he, he hesitated for about a second. And then he punched the button like, ooh, we got past that one, right? And so I said, I proposed that while we were together, as long as we're being accountability partners, as long as we're together, anything we do together doesn't count. Because we're, you know, and, and my point is that, you know, uh, he didn't really carry a lot of weight. In, in that sense, right? If I'm going to go talk to a priest, well, this is a guy who took a vow of abstinence. Nobody does that just so they can lord it over other people. No man does that. That's, that's, this is a sacrifice, and that brings weight. It's to the, to the thing of being supercilious, you know? Nobody gets into that because, because they, they, you know, I wouldn't think. Uh, I, I, res- I can respect a priest who has gone through all he's gone through to be who he is. And that's somebody I could talk to and somebody I would be a little afraid to talk to because I, you know, I got to sit up straight and listen. Corey? Well, the, you mentioned the second one um, about the superior cannot be superior in the sense of being supercilious, in the sense of being haughty, full of, full of themselves, lording it over other people. And I think that that's true because Catholicism is always 
trying to humble us, is always reminding us of our sins, of our weakness before God, not in a degrading way as, as to, to make us feel, um, you know, despair of ourselves. But it, it is the sort of thing where everyone has dignity, but everyone is also supposed to, to approach things with humility. So you might be the most powerful, the most wealthy person, but you're still going to be told that you're a sinner and that you need right. to repent. And I think that carries a lot of weight. Right. Right. That's built into the structure of the Catholic church. Right. Well, it is right. And so you, you know, you can, people can point out that the Pope lives in a, in a palace. Right. But at the end of the day, the Pope is the servant of the servants of God. Right. And, and he's the heir of St. Peter. And I think he's contrasting this not only to other, other Protestant sects, but also to, you know, the world around us. Mm -hmm. It's not about climbing a ladder. It's about descending into service. You know, I think one of the things he talks about it being the only uh, type of Christianity that really contains every type of man, even the respectable man. And that goes to the Catholicity of the church, right? So Catholic means universal. It means it contains everybody. And this is a, a point that Chesterton makes in, in a, somewhere else in his writings where he talks about how we want to pretend that we're cosmopolitan and, you know, children of the world. But what we really do is we, we hunker down uh, and we splinter off with people who share our thinking and our tastes. And he said, you know, Corey, remember that line where he said mm -hmm. something defective? There's a reason why, uh, you know, that if you're really going to love the world, you have to love your neighbor. And there's a reason why Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Uh, enemies and love our neighbors because they're often the same people. And Catholicism, you know, here, let me put this in practical terms. I spent most of my Protestant ministry career, you know, in the evangelical world where what you were doing is a tractional church ministry. Mm -hmm. So, Ed, you worked in this sure. world. You know, you were doing giant rock concert things at church and we we're doing that to try to attract people to come to this church on this corner. Right. Right. Uh, because they wanted to, they liked the band and they wanted to be around people and the pastor dressed cool and they did this, that. Right. So the idea is that you splinter people, uh, you divide people up according, like as a consumer model, according to their tastes and preferences and all that. Whereas Catholicism, one of the things that appealed to me is that I go to my parish church. And so when I decided to become Catholic, there were some Catholic parishes, you know, that were within driving distance of me. That I thought, well, you know, that one just seems really cool. I think the building is neat and I, you know, what I, I know of it seems like the kind of thing that appealed to me. But I thought if I'm going to be Catholic, I'm going to drive down to the, to the literally the closest church to my house and walk into my parish, even if it's not to my taste. Right. And you're going to be sitting with the rich people and the poor people and the people you like and the people you don't like. And right. And that comes everybody. Right. And that's what it means to be Catholic. It means to be part of this church that's bigger than I am. And, and, and in, in a sense, as Chester puts, it contains every type of person. Even. I felt that when you took me to the cathedral, to the mass, mm. I, I was looking around and uh, uh, I felt like I saw every type of person. I didn't feel like I was seeing everybody from one community or another community or group of people. I felt like I was seeing a pretty broad spectrum, which has not been necessarily been my experience in, in uh, Protestant churches. You know, Chesterton's fourth reason here, that is, it's the only thing that talks as if it were the truth, as if it were a real messenger refusing to tamper with a real message. So as I said to you a couple of hours ago, I got an email from a, a former Protestant colleague, another minister uh, that I used to know. And 
they, they this this person colleague had listened to some of the podcasts and was like you seem to be really strong on this Catholic stuff. Like, why don't you just talk about general topics or generic Christian topics instead of leaning into all this Catholicism stuff? They said, you know, your, your podcast might be more popular and you might get more supporters if you, if you just made it like about generic Christianity and not Catholicism. And uh, why, why get all granular about Catholic teaching? And I thought about this point here. It's the only thing that talks as it was it were the truth. It comes off the Protestants as kind of arrogant. Like Catholics just assume that they're that Catholicism is true and that you have to be Catholic to be fully, you know, engaged with uh the historic, you know, Christian faith. And I go, Yes. We'll, well try not to be jerks about it. But. Try not to be jerks about <laughs> it. But but I'm but look, I, I you know, again it goes back to if I think it's true. If I think it, for for example, if I do believe that in apostolic succession and the continuity of 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 uh, the ministry of the apostles, and if I if I do believe that you know the canon of Scripture was given to us by the authority of the Church and the teaching of the apostles has come down as the tradition of the Church, if I believe that that's true, and I do. Well, I can't pretend that I don't, and I think that's one of the things about the Catholic Church that Chesterton's drilling in on is it is it. It, it, it doesn't talk as if it has to persuade. It simply, it simply assumes that it, I don't know, am I making any sense? Yeah, it, it's, it sort of exposes, the, the person who wrote this email to you sort of exposes Protestant pandering, you know? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, the, uh, you know, would you like fries with that? Basically, you know, what <laughs> yeah. do we have to do? What's the most important thing? Not to tell the truth. The most important thing is to get a lot of listeners, right? Uh, and let them then then let them decide things for themselves. Develop whatever. a more palatable message, right? So, anything else about these six guys? I don't know how much we have to say about it, but I do find number six really compelling, where it says the only large attempt to change the world from the inside, and then he specifies working through wills and not laws, because I think that's that's Christianity at its best is persuading rather than compelling. Um, it's, uh, proposing the truth with confidence as, as you said, um, reflecting on that, that previous point, number four, and then, um, helping people to come to it, helping them to practice it instead of, um, it being an external, um, means, I mean, gov- government's compelled by law. You can do this. You can't do that. You get a break in your taxes from this or, or not from that. Um, it's, it's guiding and shaping you, but it's, it's external to your will. Um, and the church is trying to persuade and form your will rather than just say you, you can do that or you can't do this or we'll make right. you do this. Yeah. You know, when he talks about the, uh, I like that, Corey, but when he talks about the only large attempt, there's a couple of ways that we can think of large. Sure. Right. Because other people might argue, well, Marxism is attempting to change the world. And that's a pretty large thing. There's, it's, it's been pretty big. You, but, but with large also means not just, I mean, also means time and continuity. And I think this goes back to the issue of the, the, the Catholic church, as Chester and said, is one whirling adventure. Orthodoxy is a whirling adventure of that has, it has lasted and, and survived, right? That great line where he says, you know, the, the heresies and, and all of the things that have been of this world lie sprawling prostrate in its feet while it rumbles on. And in a sense, yeah, Marxism for the last century or century and a half or two has, uh, you know, has, has been in a, a, a big attempt to change the world. 
Um, but that's that's been 150 years. But Catholicism, 2,000 years later, continues to be the one thing that still is standing. And and that to me also, I guess, I was struck me too when he talks about the large attempt. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I would say about that is that when when the church is doing things well, she persuades rather than coerces. Of course, because we're human and we're we're sinful, the church can can err in this way and has. But the the default, the the church working as it should is is not is working through the will rather than through laws. I think it's baked in the cake for Marxism that it works through through laws, through co- coercive right, right. means rather than primarily through persuasive means meant to, to guide people's wills. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I think that there's a lot of Marxists or whatnot that would say, no, 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 we're, we're creating a new man with new taste. But, but how? Well, but the funny thing is, is that at the end of the day, uh, there's always w- w- there's always a fist behind that. I mean, what's uh, George Orwell's line about um, uh, the the Inquisitor says to Winston Smith, um, "Imagine uh, imagine a boot stepping on your face forever." That that's that's what it is. At the end of the day, for all of the talk of persuasion. It really always does come down to who has the guns and who has the hobnail boots. Right. And, and Marxism is only one example, a particularly sure. relevant example today and for the last yeah. couple hundred years. But I think you could say it about lots of yeah. especially political programs is that sure. when they're working right the way they're designed to, yep. they're coercive. Well, yeah, you could say this thing about fascism, you know, uh, in the 30s. Uh, but the point is, as you say, is that at the end of the day, all of these attempts to change people from the inside out are failures because they don't change people in the same way. That's the, that's what Catholicism has a large scale. In the end, they all do and revert to the hobnail boot stepping on your face. So in this essay, we're going to kind of wrap up this first episode. We're going to have a couple of conversations. We're going to keep sitting here at the secret compound recording, but we're going to cut this first episode here in a second and then pick it up later. But I want to, before we do, I want to, talk about what Chesterton sort of does next in the essay, because he, after saying, Hey, look, number one, Catholicism is true. And number two, you know, here's six instances of why it's compelling. He then says, um, or I might treat the matter personally and describe my own cultural conversion, but I happen to have a strong feeling that this method makes the business look much smaller than it really is. Numbers of much better men have been sincerely converted to much worse religions. I would much prefer to attempt to say here of the Catholic Church precisely the things that cannot be said even of its very respectable rivals. In short, I would say chiefly of the Catholic Church that it is Catholic. I would try to suggest that it is not only larger than me, but larger than anything in the world. It is indeed larger than the world. I, I, I think that's right. I think there's a whole genre of describing one's conversion experience, right? I mean, to anything, right? I mean, we've done that on this podcast. We've done that on this podcast. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's okay. I mean, you know, another yeah, it's legitimate. History, people, people want to know about somebody's conversion. But I think what I like about Chester, he goes, in some sense, it makes it seem smaller. It is interesting. Why did so-and-so convert? I mean, Augustine's confessions and, and a thousand other things like that. That's all interesting. But at the end of the day, it's not about me. That's about something bigger than the world, right? And what, what is that, how does that strike you guys? Well, yeah, because uh, an individual is finite and can only convert for so many reasons, um, but they can't comprehend or, or they can't be motivated by all of the things that, that make Catholicism true, or they, they can't 
just because of their limited nature, can't be converted by all of its Catholicity all at once. I mean, we we hope, of course, over time to to be able to to understand and kind of inculcate it. Um, but yeah, a, a conversion story is necessarily this limited set of things: two, three, four, five, six, seven things really appealed to me and drew me in. Whereas that's only a small sampling of the many things that I could say. Right. Well, it's right. I mean, it makes it very subjective. Like you say, it's, these are the things that appeal to me rather than saying, this is something that is, that is, um, as Chester said, it's bigger than the world. And in other words, I, I don't want to talk about why this thing appealed to me or appeals to me. I want to talk about the thing itself. My experience with uh, being a Protestant is that, you know, me bouncing around from the Baptist church to the charismatic church to the church growth movement and all that, I was always trying to find a place where I belonged based on whether I thought this place was cool or whether they had good music or really liked their approach or these people are really neat or whatever, right? And I don't feel that the Catholic church is asking me that at all. Catholic church is saying, look, we're all doing this because it's true. And we're all changed, like you said one time in a sermon, we're changing ourselves to fit this. We're not, that appeals to me. You know, I think when you, when you really love something, there's two ways you can, you know, you can write love poems, I suppose, where you describe how the beloved makes me feel. You know, when I see you, my heart flutters and my palms sweat right. and I, you know, blah, blah, blah. In other words, you're, you're, you're relativizing the thing that you love by making it, in a sense, about you. Or, it, but if you truly love something, you you talk about it, and I think that's one of the things about that I think Chesterton's getting at, and for me with Catholicism is, I, 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 you know, in the Protestant world, I was so used to conversion stories and testimonies and telling stories, and you know, I, we've all sat here on the podcast and and told a little bit of our stories, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think that my story is the thing that I really want to talk about. It's not the most important thing. I, I think that conversion stories can be very helpful. And, and I think the reason that is, is be the same reason. We are finite. We are particular individuals and something that, you know, your, it's in your story or in somebody else's story, I can really relate to. And like, it, it can really be persuasive or helpful to me, but it's not the thing itself. I'm not converting to the church of Greg. Right. Good thing. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, right. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about how, in some sense, I don't want to always just talk about how I feel about Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. And in a sense, that's what Catholicism is about. I want to talk about uh, Christ and I want to talk about the things he's done in this world and I want to talk about his kingdom and I want to talk about his church. And I'm just a tiny, itty bitty little piece of it and not very important. And and instead of making me feel bad, that actually makes me feel pretty good. That's, that's a comforting thought. It's a comforting thought, right? Because if it was up to me, oh my gosh, I'd screw it all up. Um, so, you know, uh, it's good to be a part of something that's bigger than we are. So let's stop here and uh, we'll end this episode, but we're going to keep this conversation going sitting here and uh, we'll just simply cut it and roll it over into the uh, uh, one of the next episodes. Okay? Great. Sounds Thanks, good. Guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. 
And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.